0: Look, on a hill far away, the outskirts of Madrid, stands not an old rugged cross, but the world's tallest memorial cross at the Valley of the Fallen. Got a picture here of it for you. Pictures really don't do justice to the massive scale of the cross. It's built over the 18-year period from 1940 to 1958 out of pure granite. It stands 500 feet tall and can be seen from over 20 miles away. That's a powerful symbol. And uh, maybe someday you'll get to go and see it for yourself. I'd like to. It'd be kind of a cool thing to check off my bucket list. But that cross stands there as a powerful reminder and symbol of the Christian faith. Everybody who sees it has to acknowledge the cross. All over the world, that's the way crosses work. They are the universal symbol for Christianity. We, we adorn our churches with them so that you know this isn't just any old building. This is a Christian church. We have one, one here on the inside of our church. We have them around our neck. They mark us out as Christians. We hang them in our homes. They mark our graves. I mean, the cross is everywhere. It marks us out as Jesus' people. We are Christians. And yet I think there is a downside to the pervasive use of the cross as a symbol. And it's that because it's everywhere, hard to miss, we can assume we know what it's all about when we really don't. And so that's what I want to do today. This passage is so deep. uh, We could spend weeks on it. And we're going to spend one week on it. It's crazy. I was telling Mike, preached almost 70 messages from the Gospel of Mark. And I only get to preach one on the cross. It's unfair. But it's what we're doing. And so this morning, my question for you as we begin is simple. Do you know why Jesus died on the cross? I know you know he did die on the cross, but do you know why he died on the cross? You see, the cross is absolutely meaningless for you if you don't know why Jesus died there. There's no value to be gained from wearing it or putting it in your house. It's not like there are vampires out there that you can show the cross to. It's not how it works. Knowing that Jesus died on the cross is not enough. You see, the cross isn't simply a symbol of Christianity it's the very heart of it and that makes understanding the cross so important in fact one theologian of the 20th century said he who understands the cross aright understands the whole bible and understands the depths of Jesus Christ the apostle paul said it like this the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are being those who are perishing but for those who are being saved it's the power of god and so this morning I wanna walk through this passage to see the crucified king so that you'll know why Jesus died on the cross and you'll believe with all your heart that he died there for you. And this is my main idea. When you believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the only hope for sinners, you will be saved. When you believe Jesus' death on the cross is the only hope for sinners, you will be saved. And there's a lot in that phrase. And so I wanna... Clear out some brush, do some groundwork first. I know you think it's obvious that the cross of Jesus is the only hope for sinners, but did you know that you can acknowledge the fact of Jesus' death without benefiting from it? You can acknowledge the fact of Jesus' death without benefiting from it. That's the first point I want you to see this morning. Mark has walked us through the final week of Jesus' life. He started back on Sunday, Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey and the pilgrims greeted him in the streets. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Monday of his final week, he arrived at the temple, rendered his judgment on it. On Tuesday, he engaged with the religious leaders in debates over his authority and the authority of the law. On Wednesday, he was anointed in Simon's house by the woman with the alabaster jar poured it out all over him, anointing him for his burial. On Thursday night, he ate the last supper with his disciples and then head out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas betrayed him. And he was delivered to the Sanhedrin early Friday morning who had their little mock trial. And they handed him over to Pilate, which we saw last week, first thing Friday morning. And Pilate gave up all responsibility, abdicated out of fear of man, and it rendered Jesus over to be crucified. And Mark picks it up the praetorian guard scourging Jesus and preparing him for his crucifixion. Mark doesn't give us the gruesome details. This isn't the passion of the Christ. There's no cat of nine tails, no flagellation or beating. Said Mark doesn't focus so much on the physical torture and pain of the whole thing as he does on the verbal abuse that the onlookers threw at Jesus. I know you, you heard that over and over. They insulted him, they mocked him, they wagged their heads at him and said. I think there are two reasons for this. First is that the, the first readers of Mark's gospel who probably lived in Rome didn't need anybody to explain to them the details of crucifixion. They had witnessed them before and seeing one crucifixion is enough. You, you know what it's about. You know, that it's the cruelest form of torture ever devised by mankind. A person dies over an excruciatingly long period, sometimes as as many as two days. They hang on the cross, even and hoving for their final breath until finally they suffocate under the own weight of their body. Mark's readers didn't need anybody to tell them what Jesus went through in his crucifixion. They knew. But I think there's another reason And it's that what Mark is after in his gospel is faith. He wants people to see Jesus crucified and trust in him. And so he shows us the response of the onlookers so that we'll know that that's not the way we ought to respond. You see, there were people there at Jesus' crucifixion who acknowledged that it had happened, but who failed to benefit from it for themselves. I mean, just look at these different groups. You have first the Roman cohort, 480 men responsible for helping Pilate maintain order in Judea. They were chosen from the areas surrounding Judea, so they had this natural animosity and hatred for the Jews. And so once they scourged him and got behind the walls of the praetorium, that's their barracks, away from the prying eyes of the crowd, they were finally able to let the king of the Jews have it. And for them, they acknowledged his crucifixion. They're preparing him for it. Right, they're beating him within inches of his life. And then they're going through this mockery, dressing him up in purple, twisting together a crown of thorns and placing it on his head, giving him a reed, a long stick that was like a play royal scepter and then bowing before him and saying, Hail, the King of the Jews. I mean, these men acknowledged his crucifixion, but they misinterpreted it see, what they saw was political judgment on a man who claimed to be king. And clearly, he was no kind of king. Kingship in the Roman Empire was reserved for Caesar. One they believed was the son of God. Only he possessed royalty. Only he possessed authority. Only he possessed kingship. And so here, the powerful Roman Empire was rendering its political judgment on this Jew who claimed to be king. And then you've got the onlookers and the Jewish officials who, once Jesus is crucified, walk by him and hurl insults at him. If the Romans misinterpreted the crucifixion as political judgment, then the Jews interpreted it as God's judgment. I mean, you remember if you were here a couple weeks ago when the Sanhedrin was trying to find some charges that would stick on Jesus They ran through a couple different options. The first being that he said he was gonna tear down the temple in three days and rebuild it. And then that he claimed to be God, the son of man, the son of the living God. And so we see these things come up again. They say, ah, you who are gonna destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In verse 31, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. See, for them, Jesus was getting exactly what he deserved. He'd spoken against God's temple. He'd claimed to be God's Messiah, and now God was striking him down, rendering his judgment, giving him what he deserved. And the only people in the whole scene who come out semi-sympathetic towards Christ are these people who hear him cry out in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They hear him say, Eloi, Eloi, which is my God, my God. But they think he says, Eli, Eli, which is short for Elijah. And so they start to wonder, maybe, maybe the crucifixion is his final act. This powerful man who worked miracles and taught with authority, maybe he's going to the depths of sorrow, but Elijah is going to return right here in this moment, and he's going to get off the cross and he's gonna establish his kingdom. It's gonna be a rags-to-riches story. It's gonna be great. And yet, as they try to feed him the sour wine, he breathes his last and dies. And I think even some of Jesus' own disciples were caught up in this. We read about him in Luke 24. They're on their way home to a village called Emmaus when Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to them. And he says, why are you guys so sad? And say, don't you know what just happened? how Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and we thought he was the one who was gonna redeem Israel. These people looked at the crucifixion and they saw it as a sad ending to a bright life. And all the potential that Jesus had was cut short by this crucifixion. I mean, each group saw it with their own eyes and misinterpreted projecting back onto the cross their own preconceived ideas. Too many people were present that day to witness what you and I would like to have seen. Would it make it real to us to have stood among the scoffers and to know that it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished? many people present to witness the crucifixion but few of them benefited because few looked on the cross with faith and through the many centuries that have passed nearly 2000 years since Jesus death there are many people who have looked at this story recorded for us in the scriptures and have misinterpreted it there's a man named Faustus Sasinus. that's not like an allergy thing he's a theologian from the 16th century who rejected the orthodox view of the cross and said that the cross wasn't about Jesus' suffering penalty for sin and saving his people, but it was about the example he set for all mankind, that we all can be like Jesus, that if we will devote ourselves wholeheartedly to obedience to God, whatever the cost, we can be saved. There are others who said that the cross is the great demonstration of God's love and that we're like wounded children who run from an abusive father. But when we see the love that God has for us on the cross, we're drawn toward him, ready to be received by him. Other people have said, the cross is the greatest demonstration of selfless love, and that the goal of our lives ought to be like Jesus and be to lay down our life for our friend. That's the essence of the cross. But you know that's not right, don't you? you know that falls short of the biblical picture? Yes, Jesus set an example for us to follow in his steps. And yes, his death on the cross demonstrates the love of God for us. And yes, no greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for his friends and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. And yet at the heart of the gospel, there is so much more. And so people acknowledge the fact of the crucifixion, Jesus' death there on the cross, but they fail to benefit from it because they misinterpret it. But that's not the only reason. I also think lots of people today fail to benefit from Jesus' death on the cross because they relegate it to historical fact. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross somewhere a long time ago. I'm good with that. But what does that have to do with me? That you know, the crucifixion of Jesus is one of the most well attested facts of history around the world. The Roman historian Josephus, writing in the first century, records the death of Jesus. He's no disciple. The Roman historian Tacitus records the death of Jesus in his Annals of Roman History. Even today, One of the foremost historians of early Christianity, an atheist and outspoken unbeliever who shows up on History Channel this time of year debunking the resurrection, a man named Bart Ehrman, says this about the crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans is the most certain event of Jesus' life. Even people who deny the fact that Jesus is God's son acknowledge the reality of the crucifixion. But while they acknowledge it as a fact of history, they fail to accept it or to appropriate it so that it has any significance in their daily life. No different than anybody else who died in the past for some great ideal that they had. This, this really struck home for me several years ago. You know, I'm out here trying to share the gospel and I run into a friend of mine who was an outspoken atheist and we got into a debate at a coffee shop And so I agreed that I would read one of his books if he would read one of my books. So he had me read this book called The God Hypothesis, and we discussed it. And I had him read the Gospel of Mark, and we discussed it. We got to the end of the book, and I asked him, like, what did you think? He said, well, there's some weird stuff about demons going into pigs. (laughs) You don't remember that story? He said, you know, other than that, it's pretty interesting. And so I said, well, what did you think about the cross? He said, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Totally unmoved. Totally unfazed. It's like Julius Caesar died. Jesus died. What's the difference? And so many people acknowledge the fact of Jesus' death but they fail to benefit from it. What we're talking about this morning, what the heart of the Christian faith is, is not agreeing that Jesus died on the cross. Many people do that. The heart of the faith is believing it, banking on it, trusting in his death for your sins. That's the essence of the gospel. And so this morning, I wonder, Have you acknowledged the fact of Jesus' death yet failed to benefit from it? Is it some historical fact tucked away as an abstract concept, a date on some Western civilization quiz, but fail to have any meaningful significance in your life? Well, if that's you, please listen closely to the next bit of my message because you got two options when it comes to the cross. You can acknowledge the fact of Jesus' death and fail to benefit from it, or you can examine the facts of his death and believe. Those are your two options. You can either acknowledge the fact and fail to benefit, or you can examine the facts and believe it. And so that's what I want to do with you now. I want to examine the facts of Jesus' death. Why did Jesus die on the cross? There was another person present at the foot of the cross who saw everything that happened but responded differently to Jesus' death than everybody else. You you saw him. In verse 39, a Roman centurion was standing right in front of him and when he saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, this Roman centurion was the man responsible for overseeing Jesus' execution. His men had driven the nails into his hand and feet and his post was to stand there at the cross until Jesus died. This centurion had undoubtedly seen dozens of if not hundreds of crucifixions. He had overseen them. He had carried them out. He made sure his guys followed all the checklists. Okay, did you nail his hands? Did you nail his feet? Did you break his legs? He knew how crucifixions were supposed to happen. Seen them all before. And yet something about Jesus' death was so different that at the end of it, he says, surely this man was the son of God. I believe that Mark intentionally draws this centurion to the forefront so that we can hear his response. I mean, there's a few times in the gospel of Mark where we see people calling Jesus the son of God, but they're usually demon-possessed people. The demon saw Jesus and said, we know who you are. You're the son of God. What do you want to do with me? This is the first time in the gospel that a human being, unpossessed by a demon, rather possessed by eyes of faith, sees the truth about Jesus. Jesus. This man was the son of God, and I believe Mark shows us this centurion because this is the right way to examine his death, to take in all the details and respond in faith, to see Jesus as he truly is. See, Jesus had been predicting his death for weeks. It starts back in Mark chapter eight when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? They say, well, some people say you're Elijah." And some people say you're John the Baptist, and some people say you're the prophet. And Jesus says, yeah, but who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says, we believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately, Jesus says, okay, well, then listen up. When the Son of Man gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed and delivered in the hands of men, and they're going to kill him. In Mark chapter 9, it happens again. He tells them in verse 31, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him. And when he's killed, he'll rise again three days later. But the disciples didn't understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him for more details. He does it again in chapter 10. He says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death and they'll hand him over to the Gentiles and they'll mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. In addition to these three predictions of his death, which I know you already noticed, came true, he says in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. At the Last Supper in Mark 14, Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. This cup is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Drink in remembrance of me. See, all along, Jesus had been explaining to his disciples the significance of his death. He had given them the grid through which they could understand everything that was going to happen to him. They failed. They abandoned him. They ran and hid away behind locked doors. But he was gonna come again to them after his resurrection and help them to put it back together to see that the scriptures had been fulfilled in his death and that he was the Messiah and Son of God. So I wonder what would happen if you and I, living after the resurrection with the benefit of God's scriptures being completed, could look back at his death using the Holy Spirit and the scriptures that he's given us to understand its significance, to really examine it. You think we could arrive at the same conclusion the Centurion had? Let's see, okay, let's see. So why did Jesus die? Well, by his own teaching, Jesus died to redeem his people from their sins. That's the reason Jesus died. He, He taught this. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus had taken the Passover meal which commemorated the death of the Passover lamb and the blood painted on the doors as God passed over his people and carried out judgment on Egypt, they were spared. And here Jesus was dying on Passover to fulfill that picture. That Jesus was dying to redeem his people of their sins by being their substitute. Now, this isn't in your notes, but it'd be worth writing down. Jesus redeemed his people from their sins by being their substitute. There's a great irony in this story that the Romans mocked Jesus as king of the Jews and they nailed the charges against his head, king of the Jews. There's a great irony that the Jews said, let this Christ, the king of Israel, come down that we may see and believe. They mocked him for being the Christ, the king of Israel, but that's exactly who he was. He was their king. He was their leader. He was their representative. And as he was there on the cross, he wasn't dying for any sin that he had committed. He was suffering as their king, as their leader. He was suffering in their place as their substitute. And as their substitute, number two, he was suffering the penalty they deserved. Since the people of Israel had rebelled against their God, they'd committed themselves to Ritual and tradition trying to draw near to him through sacrifices and worship and, in fact, failing to actually achieve the righteousness that God really desires, a righteousness that comes from the heart. And so what God did is he fulfilled all his promises to provide for them a sacrifice, a lamb that could take away their sin. The bloods of bulls and goats could never do that, but God accomplished it by sending Jesus to die in their place. And we know that as he hung there and darkness descended on the face of the earth the third hour, crucified at the third hour, 9 a.m., darkness descended on the earth at the sixth hour, noon. And for three hours, heavy darkness lay over the land. The scriptures, darkness is a symbol of God's judgment and wrath. And as Jesus was there on the cross, he felt the full weight God's wrath towards sin. It's why he cries out using the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I and mean, Jesus is a man who lived wholeheartedly for God, obeying him in every jot and tittle of his law. It's the first time in his entire life he felt what you and I feel all the time. Separation from God because of sin. And in that moment, he was separated from God, not because of any sin that he'd committed, but because of your sin and my sin that God had chosen to lay on him. Paul says it like this. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Think about that. I know that gets turned around. Paul often does that. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. God took our sin and placed it on Jesus' back. And as he suffered there on the cross, he felt the penalty that our sin deserved. What Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter two twenty four: He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. what Paul says. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Listen, Jesus died to redeem his people from their sins, and he did so by being their substitute, the perfect lamb without spot or blemish, on whom God laid the entire sin of the world, so that He could suffer in our place, bearing our punishment. And because he bore our punishment, he could, number two, reconcile his people to God. If sin alienates us and separates us from God, Jesus pays the penalty for our separation. And the result is that he brings us back to God. And that's what we see in verse 38. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the temple's an amazing structure. You ought to go online today, Google it, Herod's Temple. See the diagram, it's massive, gold-plated. You thought it'd be awesome to see that cross from 20 miles away. You talk about getting blinded by the temple in Jerusalem when the sun hit it just right. Inside the temple, there were two giant curtains, heavy and thick, one that stood right inside the temple, barring the inside of the temple from the courtyard, and one on the inner court of the temple, Separating the holy place from the most holy place. Mark doesn't tell us which veil tore. He just says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I've wrestled with it all week. Which veil was it? I don't think you can say for certain. I thought maybe one of y'all knew. Either way, either way, the temple veil was torn. And the veil that separated God from man split wide open. Mankind could go in. The author of the letter to the Hebrews says that the veil that was torn was the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place. The place of God's very presence. And because of that, he says, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil... That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Listen, because of Jesus' death on the cross, his people are reconciled to God. Paul says it like this in Colossians 1.20, that through Christ, God was reconciling all things to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Listen, Jesus died on the cross so that you would never have to feel separation and alienation from the God who made you and loves you. He suffered the penalty for you so that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he opened up a pathway into God's presence. You are washed in the blood. You have been cleansed. There is nothing whatsoever that could separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ and you belong in his presence. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He died to reconcile you to God. And he can only do that because he's the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so lastly, Jesus died on the cross to reveal himself as the son of God and savior. That's what the centurion tells us, that if you look at the cross with the right eyes, with the eyes of faith, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, what you will arrive at is Jesus Christ is the son of God and the savior of the world. It's on the cross that we see God most clearly. There is no other God than the God who took on flesh and lived a sinless life and died on the cross to redeem his people from their sins and to reconcile them to himself. There's no other God that exists beside that God. We know that because God is love and the cross is the perfect demonstration of God's love that the God who created us didn't abandon us to our sin, but so loved us that he would give his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life, and this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us, that he gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and that God demonstrated his own love for us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for For us. us. This morning, do not let the cross be an empty memorial or a symbol of some abstract faith. The cross of Jesus is the heart of your faith, it's the essence of Christianity. Without it and the resurrection that follows, there is no hope for man. But if you believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the only hope for sinners, you'll be saved. So I wonder today, are you a Christian? I'm not asking, do you wear the cross? and asking if it by the door of your house? I'm asking, have you examined the facts of Jesus' death and believed it with all your heart? Have you come to the place where you could personalize the scriptures? That Christ Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures? that he himself bore my sins in his body on the tree that I might die to sin and live to righteousness. If you can't say that you've ever done that, if you have never come to a point in your life where like the centurion, you say, surely, surely if Jesus died on the cross to redeem me from my sins, surely if Jesus died on the cross to reconcile me to God, surely if Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior, then he deserves everything I am. He deserves more than a necklace or a bracelet. He deserves all that I am and all that I have. This morning, today, today, like right now, the time to settle that for yourself. Maybe you need to pray a prayer. Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God, that you are my savior, that you suffered in my place. You felt the full weight of God's wrath for me. Please help me to trust you and to believe you, to follow you. Just a minute, our band's gonna play. I'd love to celebrate that with you. Literally, Jesus says that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. And all I'm asking is the privilege of celebrating with them. I'm asking you to embarrass yourself I'm just asking to celebrate what God's doing in your life. Maybe, you know, you, you've, you've accepted Christ, you've done the whole centurion thing. But over time, as you've gotten farther and farther away from that solemn moment, the cross has lost its meaning and value to you. You've forgotten what it means to, to feel the, the love of God when you first accepted forgiveness of your sins through Jesus' death. Maybe today's the day you get back there. Like maybe God has worn down all the calluses off your heart and you are moved. You say, I'm never going back there again. I never wanna forget, Jesus, what you did for me. Help me to live in the reality of your cross. Maybe you need prayer of some kind. Our, Our band's gonna come. We're gonna have prayer partners in the back. I'll be down here at the front. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you want to make this your church home. You want to belong to a people. Serve the crucified king. We'd love to welcome you. Put our arms together and serve him in Luling. Will you pray with me?